I saw this video the other day that was like a girl, she was filming herself from a few years ago and then she was filming herself again and her skin looks a lot different. Her face looks like much younger and fuller and all this stuff. And the caption was basically like, and that's on investing in my skin and hair and beauty, whatever. And like, then there was something about like, and preventative Botox and lip filler. And I was like, yeah, that's why your face looks fucking different, dummy. Not because you did skincare. Digress, the podcast where we read nonfiction books so that you don't have to, unless you want to. I'm Kate. And I'm Molly. And today we're going to be discussing the book What Doesn't Kill You A Life with Chronic Illness Lessons from a Body in Revolt by Tessa Miller. Another one of those books with a really long subtitle. Such a long title. <laughs> when Kate and I texted about this, we would like, sometimes we'd call it revolt sometimes we call it body and revolt <laughs> sometimes we call it what doesn't kill you we never called it the whole thing and we never called it the exactly right thing but you know what we got it out yeah i think in my last text message to you i was just let's do the revolt. chronic illness yeah let's do revolt like it was like not even yeah we, a little bit close we knew what we were talking about it's fine. and you will too <laughs> by the end of this <laughs> we hope <laughs> if not tweeted us let us know sure. or don't <laughs> just shut up about it because it's hard to do a podcast and you wouldn't know <laughs> uh welcome to the podcast where we hate our viewers uh did i just say viewers about a podcast hey, let's take that out <laughs> it's been a long week um uh, we're recording on a saturday yeah we say that to each other every single day of our lives though regardless of what point it it's is been a long week, week. yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. true true it could be like yeah. monday afternoon i'm like oh it's been a week what a week yeah <laughs> hey so do you have a synopsis what's the word i'm looking for summary Yes, I do. But before we get to the summary, we want to remind you to please subscribe to the pod, rate and review all of the episodes suggested to everyone you've ever talked to, etc. Please also follow us on Instagram and Twitter where we are rdrs digress so unfortunate i know so unfortunate i'll put it in the show notes my bad everyone my bad (laughs) we should have been like readers pod or something what was i thinking we could change it you know can we yeah i think so oh yeah i don't know how that works maybe not the twitter we can definitely change the instagram okay let's work we'll we'll look into it we'll look into it to be considered (laughs) All right. Well, back to the summary. Uh, So as Molly mentions, today we are talking about What Doesn't Kill You? A Life with Chronic Illness, Lessons from a Body in Revolt by Tessa Miller. Tessa Miller is a health and science journalist whose work appeared in the New York Times, New York Magazine, Self, Vice, and Medium. And this is her first book. Congratulations, Tessa. Uh, In What Doesn't Kill You, Miller recounts her journey with chronic illness. In her 20s, Miller was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, an incurable autoimmune disease that causes inflammation of the bowels that affects the lining of the digestive tract. This book is part memoir, part self-help, and interweaves research and interviews with healthcare professionals and other chronically ill people to explore the truth of people living with chronic illness. She writes extensively about the connections between mental health and physical health, the structural systems that make having a chronic illness so difficult, and what it means to accept the reality of never getting better. And that's all I have. Love it. That was great. Yeah, it was, I not to like spoil the rating part of this, but it was a great, great book. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Uh, obviously, I connected with it personally, which we'll get into, but uh, yeah, I thought it was a very uh, digestible read about a very heavy topic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was um it, it was definitely a heavy book. I'm sure it was even more so for UK. I didn't read it very quickly cuz it it was sad. It's sad and the, you mentioned it's like part memoir. A lot of the things she talks about are like abusive relationships with both like a, a partner she had, her family members, and a lot of her own grief and trauma and 
that is like always painful to read about. I think everyone can connect with those things in some way. So it was definitely heavy at different points, but she's a a great writer and funny and can lighten the mood often. She's like clearly mm-hmm. someone who copes with humor. So it it wasn't like a hard read in that sense, but it was slow for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, read it in like three days. Oh, nice. So okay. <laughs> I, did, I took the opposite approach, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, mostly because uh, for me it was um, this is a book that I have not seen anywhere else, uh, and by that I mean it's a memoir about someone with chronic illness talking about their experiences with chronic illness and how complicated and complex that relationship and grieving process and life is. And uh, as somebody who has two autoimmune diseases, I have been searching for something like this since I was diagnosed with my second one and really had a hard time finding something that spoke to those experiences this honestly, but also in a way that I actually wanted to read it. Yeah. There are a ton of blog posts that are just like, not well written and not particularly uh interesting where people talk about all kinds of things right but that's yeah. not exactly what i was trying to find <laughs> yeah yeah i think it's it's written in almost an academic way like it's intellectual so it but she's blending like her emotional experience with like you said the self help and the way she has like concrete steps that she's taken to improve her life despite the illness and all of that made for a very like useful and interesting reading experience Mm -hmm. so i can see how this differs from just like someone's blog um (laughs) yeah 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 the i don't know there are a lot of shitty blog posts out there (laughs) yes no offense everyone but you're terrible at writing and you should stop Everyone. Bless everyone. (laughs) Except me, who is perfect, obviously. (laughs) And I will continue to (laughs) until I am famous. Thank you. And goodbye. (laughs) Anyway. Best uh, regards. (laughs) Best regards. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) So, do you want to start us off with your key takeaway? Yeah. Mine is, I'll be honest, it's depressing. (laughs) That's fine. Yeah. Um, Now... I wouldn't say that this is something that has never occurred to me before, but in reading this book, especially in the parts where she described several of her longer hospital stays and Mm -hmm. some of the doctors that she encountered along the way, she, (laughs) I know, she, one of the main storylines in this book is an infection that she kept having to fight. It's something called C. diff, which is, is it bacterial? Yeah, I think it's a viral bacterial infection, which people who already have uh, underlying health issues are more likely to contract than healthy people. Uh, and it's can be very severe for people with those underlying health issues. And for her, she was hospitalized and nearly died from it twice. It's kind of what happens is that in order to fight the infection, you have to take these antibiotics but those antibiotics are like fucking up the natural um, symbiotic systems inside your digestive tract. And that is making it basically impossible to recover. Like you can't like get a flare from Crohn's disease to go down until you stop taking these fucking antibiotics, but you can't stop taking them because the C. diff is like ravaging your system. And so it was just this like kind of never ending cycle for her. And she was just getting weaker and weaker throughout the process And one of the only ways that they had found to successfully resolve it was something called a um, a fecal transplant. And she was able to have the first one like mid 2000s and that was successful, but she contracted C. diff again. And at that point, the FDA regulations were different. And so the doctors were less um, inclined to perform a fecal transplant. And for months, they just like refused to do it. And she had a doctor who was really good who was kind of fighting for her, but there were others involved that they wouldn't approve it. And it was just like a huge mess. So it took her months to get this 
second transplant that she needed. And in the process, she was slowly dying. And reading about those experiences left me with this very frightening and painful sense that, like, the system really doesn't care whether or not you die. And <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, they don't give a shit. Yeah, it's... And the doc- there are doctors within the system who also... They wouldn't say that they don't care, but philosophically, they don't care. It's like, well, you're just another person and I can't solve this problem. Like, sorry, sorry, I guess you'll die then. And it's just like... <laughs> Oh my god, no one cares whether or not you die. Like it, it that was my main takeaway is that like don't go into your life thinking that the hospital wants to keep you alive. Yeah. The systems that we have set up that you're correct are not actually working to make us feel better are also the systems that bring out all of the other systems of oppression in our society. So clearly, I mean, she has a whole section where she talks about how, you know, black mothers are however many more times likely to die than white mothers. And, uh, you know, disabled people and chronically ill people have their own experience of the healthcare system. And then on top of that, if you're someone where a chronically ill identity intersects with being... Uh, a marginalized racial identity or an LGBTQ plus person or any of these other identities that are marginalized in other ways or fat, right? Like as we read about, um, all of those contribute to creating a situation where there's very little that you can do to fight back. And the people that you're going to for help are not necessarily going to be able to help you or want to help you. Uh, And there's a lot of this uh, sentiment that somehow being sick is your fault. And so I think uh, that manifests in a lot of different ways across identities. And it's exactly what you're saying, that they just, the system doesn't care. I want to be clear that it's working the way it was designed by not caring about you. <laughs> that That is the problem. Uh, the problem is not that the system isn't working. The problem is that it is working. Yeah, and I think the thing that is kind of a secondary takeaway, building off of what you just described of like all the other oppression, Tessa Miller is young, white, thin, and conventionally attractive. So in those ways, she was doing everything quote-unquote right, And the system still didn't care about her. So now I'm not saying that being white and thin and attractive is actually what you are supposed to do to be legitimate as a person. But our society gives you more legitimacy and care and concern if you are those things. Mm -hmm. And the fact that she was all of those things and she was still just left to die as a 29-year-old or however old she was at the time. It's so scary because it's like you, you can't you can't be perfect enough for the system to care about you. And then if you don't have any of those like check marks, imagine how much like more difficult it is to get care and, and help like, Oh, Oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, A lot of times it's, it's nearly impossible. And I will also say that rates of disability increase with, a lot of those marginalized identities. So there are more disabled black people in our society than there are white people. And a part of that is because a lot of times disability is caused by external factors and uh, lack of resources and uh, other systemic issues. So it really does feed into itself. And uh, it's a kind of vicious cycle. Absolutely. So the only other thing I have to say about it is that the powerlessness and the devaluing of your humanity through that process leads to a lot of trauma and things like PTSD. And she talks about that a lot in the book. And it's no wonder because if you were experiencing something through no fault of your own and no one would help you and you were realizing that no one cared whether or not you lived or died, oh, it's, it's awful. Yeah. Yeah, it is. That's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I can't believe that we live in a world where we are one of the richest nations in the world and we allow this to happen every day. And 
she talks in the book about a grieving process that there are two parts of a life of somebody who's chronic ill. It's before they were diagnosed and after. And a part of what she describes there is that there's a grieving process of a person that you could have been or expected to be that you no longer have the option to. And in that stage of grief, one of the things she describes is having her anger about having this disease in the first place shift to becoming a rage at the people who allow it to be this way and allow your life to be so much more difficult because you were born with a disease that you never asked to have. Yeah. And I think that I've similarly felt that experience and a lot of my friends will sometimes want to complain about the healthcare system and I totally get it and I totally understand, but There are a lot of times where I have to actually step away from that because I can't actually step into that rage because I won't be able to get out of it. Absolutely. Because I felt it so acutely that I I can't actually extricate myself from that Mm -hmm. conversation as just another topic. And so there have been a lot of times where I've been like, oh, I've got to I got to get out of here now because this is actually like too much anger and that I won't be able to calm down after this conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's you're describing like a trigger for like a traumatic experience and that is something that deregulates your nervous system so much that other people are mad about it, sure, but they're not going to go into a spiral over it the way you right. are going to, <laughs> like understandably. Right. Yeah. I'm like, okay, so I uh, actually have to leave now because yeah, <laughs> I yeah, will yeah. literally turn into the Hulk. That is yeah, what is happening absolutely. right now. <laughs> well, and it's this anger that is so unsatisfying because you don't have any way to release it. Like, There is, I mean, you can do things, obviously, but there is no, like, satisfaction to be had. There is... Well, it can expect to that powerlessness, right? That, in fact, being angry feels like you're doing something, but it's not actually doing anything at all because there's uh, not a lot in an individual interaction one-on-one that can be done. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Mm -hmm. what she calls for in this book and what I also believe is that there needs to be significant structural and policy change mm-hmm. for anything to actually get better. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is one of those things similar to like climate change, that it's such a big problem. And there are so many people that need to invest in changing it. And that you are watching them in politics just kind of refuse to like take responsibility. And the more you think about it, the more you're like, I, I can't think about this. Like It is so too much for me. And there's only so much one person can do and we're already doing it and it is really overwhelming. So like, (laughs) not only is the rage overwhelming, but the reality of like how slow the change will be, that is also overwhelming. And so it's makes sense that you need to like step away from it. Yeah. Should I go into my key takeaway? So I had a lot of personal key takeaways from this book, but I think the one that I want to highlight for other people is one that is probably the biggest lesson that I have learned as somebody who lives with two chronic illnesses every day. And she bolds it in the book, which I love. Uh, So my key takeaway is just control is an illusion. Uh, And it's something that she talks about in a number of different ways. Uh, But essentially, it's this idea that we feel like we are promised uh, a life without illness. We are promised a life where there's some sort of order and that is untrue. It's fundamentally not correct. And I think there are a lot of ways that people grapple with a loss of control in their lives. Uh, A lot of times very harmful ways, uh, including eating disorders and addiction and abuse and all kinds of other terrible things that we do to ourselves and each other. But I found that that lesson has really stuck with me and is something that I try to repeat to myself a lot. 
it's incredibly humbling to recognize your life and body's coexisting fragility and strength while you're grieving a self that can never be again. It's just a very humbling experience. And I think that a huge part of that is recognizing that you you don't have control. Yeah, that spoken like a true Libra. Uh, one of my main philosophies in life is like two things at once. And so there's a lot of beauty to be found when we are able to hold like two seemingly opposing things like fragility and strength at the same moment. Um, but I don't think America especially is very good at at that we're I think most Americans like to be black and white like good bad right wrong that sort of thing that that comes from evangelicalism FYI <laughs> and Catholicism I can't ever shut up about it <laughs> uh, puritanical belief systems so anyway uh <laughs> back to the topic at hand I think that um that when you are able to extricate yourself from that traditional way of thinking, you actually find a lot of relief from the need to always know the answer to something and always be able to categorize it. When you're able to just be like, actually, this is both of these things at the same time. Mm -hmm. And you get used to that sense. I think it is a lot closer to freedom than when you feel like you have control of something. Um, Well, one of my quotes is actually... Uh, about the control sort of thing. So I think I'll start there. So Kate, you were just talking about control and that being an illusion. And one of my first quotes is about that phenomenon. And she talks about it in terms of blame in this one section. And she says, blame is a natural part of grieving a loss. And as I wrote in chapter five, it's a way to cling to hope. If we're able to find something that caused an illness that reinforces a sense of order in the world, it means there's a definite cause. And if there's a cause, there must be a cure. Blame leaves room for that possibility. And this resonated with me a lot because it goes back to that idea of if you can blame yourself for something, you can pretend to yourself that you have control over what happened. Mm -hmm. It reminded me a lot of this conversation I had with my mom back in... It was like the end of the summer of 2019 and at the time I was really struggling with rejection and not being able to cope with it and like romantic rejection in particular and my mom like I was trying to verbalize like all the ways that it must have been my fault that this that I felt rejected in this way and that like maybe if I'd been more like this or this or this and my mom was just like there you didn't do anything wrong and it was this other person And I was so frustrated by the conversation and was trying to explain to her that like, that is not comforting. That makes it worse because what you were saying to me is that I have no control over people rejecting me, that that I can do nothing wrong and they will still not want me. And that was at the time, something that I like could not cope with. I, it sucked that it was like my fault and that maybe I'd done these things wrong, but if it was, it made me feel like, okay, well, at least there is hope that I can fix it then. And if it's my fault, like, then I have control over this fucking situation. And although at the time it felt like much worse to not have control over it, as I was able to move away from this idea of like, it's my fault. And I was more gentle and kind with myself and got to see like all of my own value. It made the knowledge that I can't control the experience of rejection a lot more palatable and while it seemed to at the time be like something that if I just have control over it I can cope with it it actually is much easier to cope with when you accept that it isn't something you are in control of and you put the work into um, caring for yourself more effectively because then you're able to maneuver something bad with like more strength and support for yourself than you otherwise would Yeah, I don't know if it's uh, easier for me to cope with. I think it's just a way of redirecting your energy so it's focused on something you can actually affect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So instead of focusing on something that you don't have control over, you can actually, you know, reassess, okay, I do have control over how I take care of myself today. And so I'm going to do that. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is by far and away a better use of our energy than worrying yeah. about something that we have no control over and there's nothing we can do about it. Right. Yeah. So absolutely. it's kind of just like it, it may not feel better to know that, but I do think that it helps us redirect our energy in a way that can be better for us mm-hmm. in terms of caring for our bodies. Well, and I think like the point I am trying to make is that it doesn't feel better right away but it will eventually. Mm-hmm. And if you keep on practicing like that redirection that you're describing over time, you build more resilience to that feeling of not having control. Yeah. And, but you don't do that if you constantly try to blame and control yourself in those ineffective ways. Yeah. So while it's like, there's no immediate feel better solution necessarily. One leads to more strength and resilience over time. And the other is just like an, a forever spiral. Yeah, yeah. I also have a lot of rage toward the wellness industry for the same reason because people with chronic illnesses legitimately feel terrible a lot of the time. And the wellness industry uses that as a way to prey on those people because they will say things like, well, if you just do X, then you won't have this. Mm -hmm. chronic illness anymore i cannot tell you the amount of times people have told me that if i just eat cinnamon my type 1 diabetes will go away or if i just do xyz then it'll just go away and Mm -hmm. i think it's important to recognize that it's not just it's not just internal that we put blame on ourselves like oh i should have done something different and that i wouldn't have ended up with this disease It's actually an external force. It's people telling me, you should have done X and you wouldn't have this disease. If you had only done Y, if you'd only eaten cinnamon, you wouldn't have to live with this. And it is, uh, it's it's really hard to hear that. Uh, Not only because it's not true, uh, but also because it's painful. And I think it is directly ingrained into Americans with this idea that as individuals we control so much and Mm -hmm. uh and again with this idea of control that like we have it over everything and therefore uh when something happens we are responsible for whatever happened to us and so again uh, there are a lot of structures that tell us that And sometimes it's structures like the medical system and other times it's really scammy uh, people selling essential oils on Facebook to me. Well, there's a difference between having something that you think has improved your quality of life or brings relief in some way and pretending that it is a cure. And I think that's the difference. It's also compounded with anti-fatness And my disease specifically of being a diabetic is compounded with anti-fatness because type 2, it is not uncurable. Uh, There are things that you can do to to help it. And so people who don't understand the illness don't understand the difference. And I'm not suggesting that people with type 2 just wouldn't get type 2 if they just had the right lifestyle because there, there are a lot of genetic components to it. But the mm-hmm, confluence mm-hmm. of factors here of American anti-fatness uh, and this like individualism mm-hmm. and a belief in control all come together mm-hmm. to mean that diabetes is often chosen as a scapegoat for a lot of things. Like, oh, you know, there's still people that have said to me like, well, you wouldn't have it if you just did X, Y, Z. And it's like, well, it's not the same kind of disease, but also even if you were talking to a type two, that would be inaccurate because so much of it has to do with their access to fresh food and resources and their genetic makeup and everything else that's going on in their body that you have no clue about. Americans want to believe that we have individual control because our system is designed to make us think we have individual responsibility over everything. And it's designed that way so that it doesn't have to have responsibility itself. If everyone is individually responsible, then they don't have to help. They don't have to solve problems. You chose this, therefore you must deal with it. And so that narrative is woven through many, many of the like buzz issues that we hear about, whether it's fatness, um, diabetes, any health and wellness things. 
Mm-hmm. It's also like financial. It's all the things. But like, yeah. I think you see it a lot in this that like Americans are really programmed to believe that there are illnesses that you choose and that you have control over. And it's safer to believe that in our system because if you have control, then you can avoid a thing that once you have, no one will help you with. Right. <laughs> so right. I understand why people are inclined to believe that, but a much more effective uh, approach would be to accept that people don't have control over these things. And if we want to be safer and more protected, we need to fucking change the system. Yes, that would be correct. <laughs> Ideal situation. <laughs> Should I go into my first quote? Yes. Uh, so I had a quote that I wanted to talk about, and I'm not going to read the whole paragraph. I'm just going to summarize what she's talking about in this chapter. It's all about, again, grieving your bodily function that you used to have, the life that you used to have, perhaps the life that you wanted to have but now are unable to. And she's talking a lot about the connections between mental health and physical health here and how having a chronic illness really requires that you take care of your mental health as well. I'm just going to read this sentence. At the end of a paragraph, she says, now read this sentence and then read it again if you need to. My life has meaning and is worth living, even if it looks different than I'd hoped. And we've talked so much about the books that you cried at. (laughs) Uh, This is the first one that I teared up at. And it actually, this is, so this is 80 some pages into the book. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until this point that I like started to get very emotional. And then I did have to put it down. Sure. And then I just picked it up a couple hours later because I was like, no, I need to know more. So I got really emotional reading that. Yeah. And I teared up, which I normally don't do when I'm reading nonfiction books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it took me a while to deconstruct why that happened. And mostly because I do agree with that sentence. Like, I do think my life is worth living, even if it does look different than what I thought or what somebody else thought. Mm-hmm. And I'm lucky to be somebody whose brain chemistry has never told me otherwise. Like, Mm -hmm. I have not had suicidal ideation consistently throughout my life, unlike other people. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in the five years since I've been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, no one has said this to me. Mm -hmm. And it brings up two, like, heavy, tender spots that were really, like, buried deep in my gut. Mm Mm-hmm. And the first is that I think it demonstrates one of the toughest parts of having a chronic illness, which is the loneliness of it. Mm. Uh, Because I think you have to live through something like this to even know that this sentence needs to be said aloud. Mm -hmm. And that is really difficult. A lot of times we'll lean on our friends when we're going through something rough. And I think we have the tendency to gravitate towards people who have been through something similar because they get it. And... You want someone who understands. And in the case of chronic illness, it's often the case that you are not surrounded by people who get it. Yeah. And so it is very lonely. And you do have to make a conscious effort to seek out people with similar experiences thereafter. But that can be really overwhelming in the first days, weeks, years of a diagnosis. And so I think it really like spoke to me on that like loneliness level. Yeah. But the other part of it, which I didn't realize until I had started reading this book, is that we're constantly hearing from society that our lives aren't worth living. Uh, and if they aren't like other people's lives. Uh, and so the fight for affordable health care is a great example, as is how the elderly, immunocompromised, and disabled have been treated in the past year and a half of the pandemic. And I think when I was first diagnosed, I was like, hey, self, how about we bury this and then we'll deal with it later because I'm busy. And I was like, deal, deal. And then throughout the pandemic year, uh, all of it came flooding back. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, shit, because what was happening is I was watching I was watching everyone else in the world grapple with what it means to not have control Mm -hmm. and I was watching everybody go through this collective trauma that I had been through already on a personal level Mm -hmm. and you know kind of more than once but really I would say the the strongest part was when I was diagnosed with diabetes and Mm -hmm. 
all of that just brought up all the shit. And then also having politicians and people that I work with and people that I uh, grocery shop with and neighbors and family members and friends all say, you know what? You don't really mean that much to us anyway. I think we're we're good to just keep living our lives. I but what about go... the economy, Kate? <laughs> I would rather go to the movies in a restaurant without a mask than care about your life. The Dow and... Jones needs you to sacrifice yourself. <laughs> the Dow Jones is more important than your life, you idiot. Consider the cost. And so all of that has just been incredibly difficult and I know the pandemic year has been very difficult on everyone and I think it's been difficult in different ways but for people who are chronically ill or disabled I think there was another added dimension to it which is just the reiteration that no one does care about you (laughs) yeah the system (laughs) does not care if you die and in fact they want you to because it's better for them yeah yeah it's it's cheaper for them if you die uh so like not only the system though but like actual individual people that you trusted and entrusted with the belief that they would care for you and care about you and then um Having that illusion ripped from you slowly uh, was not a fun experience. No, I can't imagine that it was. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, again, the pandemic year, we are all still processing everything that this has been. And Mm -hmm. we're still in the pandemic. Yeah. So it's not over. But Mm -hmm. I think there's just so much collective trauma that we probably won't get to for a while. Like there's there's a lot of effects of this that I'm not sure when or how those will manifest later, but mm-hmm. I can guarantee you they will. They're not going to yeah. go away. Yeah, I think um, it's similar to experience, not similar in the same level of, well, me, I don't know. I was going to compare it to like one of the world wars and like people coming back from that and like having lived through that. And it's like, mm-hmm. I don't want to say that this is as bad, but then on some level it's like, well, it's pretty horrific. Like lots of people have died. So yeah. who's to say, but I just meant like, we've all had this collective trauma that I think if you look at like some of the things that happened in the seventies, it's like, yeah, I wonder why, like <laughs> everyone was like, had lost their minds and then had kids and those kids turned out to be serial killers. <laughs> like it's, <laughs> Every person born in the 70s is a serial killer? Is that what we're asserting? Listen, all I'm saying is that it was very hot in California and a lot of people were killing people. You're like, I'm not not saying you're all serial killers. I'm just saying maybe you are. Just look at a history book, okay? Um, So that is my argument for why people should not be having babies during the pandemic. I'm kidding. I'm kidding, okay? Um, Am I? No, I you're like Molly's family planning. Everybody, stop! Stop! <laughs> uh, you should you have kids, but first of all, go to therapy. Don't try to do it without. Fair. Second of all, don't bury it. Like just accept that the trauma is happening and know that you have the strength to maneuver that. But don't pretend that it's not happening. Worst right, case right. scenario. That's what everyone did after the war. No one knew about these things yet. Those who did were told they were crazy. <laughs> that compounded the trauma. Then they had kids. Uh, and then those kids had us. And we are still dealing with the repercussions. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't ask to be born, okay? Yes, take it back. Okay. I'm so glad I'm here living through this experience. <laughs> are we... <sighs> anyway uh okay so that was great <laughs> i i'm glad that this helped to kind of loosen some of those things that you were your body was aware of but your mind hadn't quite grappled with yet not that it's a fun experience but i do think it is ultimately a better thing for you than to like keep it down there because yeah for you know, sure your, i mean your body is experiencing it whether you are like acknowledging that or not <laughs> Yeah, I think uh no, I I think I would have gotten here on my own anyway, but I think that the pandemic has expedited a lot of oh, things yeah. that were inevitable and mm-hmm. this may have been one of them. Yeah. I'm curious like basically I have a follow-up question to this um quote that you chose because you mentioned that it was like a 
you don't tear up very often and it was probably the first point in the book that you did is that correct mm-hmm. yeah um do you not cry <laughs> i feel like you think i'm like cold-hearted because i didn't sob at the last two books that we read uh no i i do cry but it's seldom that uh it's seldom that something external is the impetus for my okay. crying okay like usually if i cry it's because of something that like I'm feeling and like mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking about how I'm feeling that way in my reality. Yeah. And then that makes me cry. Okay. Versus like watching a fictional thing mm-hmm. and then I break down in tears or, okay. or like reading a nonfiction book that I'm like, Bleh, you know, like yeah. start sobbing. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think that it's just, it's less that other things acting on me, like bring mm-hmm. that up to mm-hmm. the surface. Yes. Uh, yes. But again, this is also like the, one of the first pieces of m- any media whatsoever that I found that reflects my experiences. And so mm-hmm. that also might be a part of it. Mm-hmm. No, that's very interesting. I Obviously, we're quite different in this way. <laughs> I One of my good friends told me this story once that she was with some friends, a roommate of hers. They did mushrooms. They were both very in a good high place. Mm -hmm. And then her roommate was like looking at her and said, you are so close to the surface. And we have like kept this phrase for years because it's such a good descriptor of like like how we are like being close to the surface, like crying at a moment's notice. I I cried Uh in this book many times, definitely before the (laughs) 80th page. Like this, I I watched the movie Taken last night. I cried watching that movie. Like this is just how I am as a person. He Taken. He hey, he's a sad guy whose daughter was stolen. (laughs) I have a very specific set of skills, and they're all crying. Listen, that's exactly right. Okay. Um, what was the part that made me? I mean, hey, listen, women being sex trafficked is sad. I'm allowed to cry about that. It is. I mean, the ideas of the movie are sad. The way it's executed is... I mean, it's terrible. Yes. But I can't <laughs> okay, help move it. on. Move on. Do you, second question. Follow up. When yeah. you... Do you do yoga every so often? Occasionally? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Do you do, you know, the pigeon pose? Where mm-hmm. you're like, yeah. Do yeah. you ever cry when you do that pose? Like, do you ever have, like, an intense emotion come up? Yeah. I've definitely had intense emotions coming up when I've done yoga. Because what I'm curious about is so the the pigeon pose is this thing that like stretches out your hips women in particular carry a lot of like trauma and emotional strain in their hips so sometimes when you yeah so yeah for real it's like hey i'm like that's why i can't move my hips they're heavy yeah (laughs) they're heavy with trauma (laughs) they're heavy with trauma okay you think i have a fat ass no it's just babe it's trauma It looks great on me, though. I look great in bike shorts. Anyway, (laughs) so when women do this pose, sometimes they'll have a strong, like, emotional reaction to it. And uh, I was wondering if you'd had that because what it it speaks to is maybe, like, you are someone who tends to intellectualize your feelings rather than feeling them, which is something Mm -hmm. I've learned in my many years stints in therapy, that, like, you tend to... Sometimes people tend to like think through and be like, why am I feeling this? Where is it coming from? Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And they're being more rational about it instead of just like having the feeling. Mm -hmm. And it's like a way that we try to process. But what I've learned is that the only way you really process your emotions is by feeling them, you know, and that's what helps resolve them. So I'm not saying that because you are not a close to the surface type that you are doing this and just was something i'm curious about as we're talking obviously you do not need to cry at movies like taken we can reserve that for me (laughs) uh and i never will i'm so sorry but no (laughs) and i categorically Uh, (laughs) refuse you dummy (laughs) unless it's on an airplane in which case it might come up i don't know all bets are off okay (laughs) that i'm like i have like a literal bucket to catch my tears and it just has a single tissue but i need like (laughs) i have one too i need medical intervention Uh, (laughs) okay uh, so my second quote was uh, an entire chapter. So <laughs> she has a chapter called 
Seven Secrets. In this chapter, she has gathered what she believe are the seven seven of the most pressing or most commonly discussed secrets chronically ill folks keep. Mm-hmm. Seven secrets that their loved ones should know. Okay. And every single one of this, I was like, co-sign. Yes. <laughs> Highlight. Sticker. Like tweet, all the tweet, things. Tweet. <laughs> yeah. I was like, retweet. Passive aggressive um, notes to my family. <laughs> and I'm like, passive aggressive notes to everyone. No. Uh, but a lot of these are like, Like, okay, so a part of this is, yes, for people who love chronically ill people, Mm -hmm. but a lot of it is also just for, like, the general public. Like, if you are a co-worker and we don't have that kind of relationship where you should be commenting on Mm -hmm. my illness, Mm -hmm. maybe just don't. Just don't do that. Uh, But I've had it happen most frequently with people I'm not actually that close with, is what I will say. Which is infuriating in a in a different way. Yeah. Some of the secrets include stop telling us what to eat, which if I could just tattoo that on my forehead, I would, honest to God. Uh, the number of times people have been like, can you eat a donut? And I'm like, I oh swear God. to God, <laughs> if I wasn't eating a donut, I'd murder you. I would this murder donut- you with the donut. <laughs> this donut keeps me in peace right now. Yes. So you're, you should be glad for the donut. Uh, stop asking if or when we'll have kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is, uh, we are so sick of unsolicited advice, i.e. stop telling me to eat cinnamon. Raise your hand if you've been personally victimized by cinnamon. Oh, God. Um, inspirational is not a compliment. Stop Ooh. saying that. Uh, yes, we really do need this much rest. Uh, and so anyways, there's, there's like seven yes. of them. Yes. There is one that I wanted to add, uh, which is explicitly talking about the systems that we're in, which is, I do not want your pity. I want your fucking vote. Yeah, yeah. Go vote. Yes. (laughs) Please, for the love of God, stop looking at me being like, wow, what a hard life. Instead, maybe go to the polls and make sure that you're voting for people that believe that healthcare is a right, not a privilege. Yes. Uh, That is the biggest thing that I could tell to literally anyone. It is that important. The best thing you can give to me is your vote. Like, please, please go do that. Yes. All right, I'm stepping, off my, I'm stepping off my soapbox now. It's a great soapbox. I think you should stay up there, keep yelling, take a break when you're tired, you know. Yeah, you it's don't have cooler to do up here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so shall we move to questions? Yes. So as Kate mentioned in the summary and as we've discussed, this book is part memoir and part self-help. So she has a lot of good steps that one can take if they've been newly diagnosed, if they are diagnosed and they're struggling, from how to find a good doctor and a good therapist to how to navigate healthcare, like uh, health insurance companies, that sort of stuff. And I'm curious, Kate, if you have a piece of advice you were given at some point after your diagnosis that has really helped you or something you've learned on your own that you have implemented that's really helped that you would like share if you were writing a book like this. It's funny that you say that because the chapter where she's talking about finding a doctor I felt like I could have written basically that whole chapter on doctors is like, know that you have the right as a patient to choose your doctor. And if Mm -hmm. you do not like your doctor, find a new one. Uh, And like, that is a huge thing because there are so many doctors who will not understand what you're going through because they don't have the disease. And if they are not good at being empathetic and if they're not willing to listen to you who know your body the best of anyone, then find a new doctor. And I say that as somebody who understands just how time-consuming and onerous it is to find a new doctor, mm-hmm. but I will say that I think it is a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I've found in navigating some of some of the health things I've had in the last couple of years is that if you've had pain or a really bad experience, um, like there was a lot of pain associated with the knee problems I've had, a PT explained to me once that the trauma of that pain kind of settles in those areas of the body. And so it increases the pain, even if there isn't like a structural issue that is causing it. So, and that like pain also increases like emotional distress. 
So one of the things I found is like, if you are having a strong emotional reaction, whether it's like a dental procedure, some other kind of um, process that you're going through and your provider is not being respectful of that or is not, is treating you like you are hysterical or ridiculous or something like that, that is a really good flag that you should go to someone else because Mm -hmm. a, a good doctor should understand that it is not just what's on the surface of the problem of like this person needs this procedure there's a lot of emotional things that go along with it because you're talking about your body and like a trauma that you experience that has like was resting on you in a certain way so if you're dealing with someone who can't understand that or won't give you space for that and is acting like you are in imposition no yeah find a new one there are other options i know that insurance can complicate things but I think one of the suggestions she writes here is find someone who has the medical issues that you have and ask them for advice, ask them if they like their doctor, uh, use online forums. I mean, there are a lot of ways to find resources that she outlines in the book of making that switch and making sure that when you make the switch, you're doing it to someone who you are more likely going to be able to connect with. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, great. Great. Okay, so I hope this isn't infringing on the key takeaway, but I am curious. I took away so many lessons from this book because Mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. is directly applicable to my life. Uh, So I'm just wondering what lessons, if any, you took away from the book. I have this. um, I think it is the way optimism has manifested in my life, but it might be a more of a like coping mechanism through denial. I often will approach things that I know are truly terrible, like the healthcare system with this kind of naivete of like, it'll be fine. And that has, that has caused me some, like gotten me into some situations that like, I should not have been in. Like, I'll tell a story. This one I don't feel sad about. So I feel scary that I did this, but I, I have a lot of anxiety that is well-documented at this point on the podcast. (laughs) And for a couple of years, this thing was happening. They think it was because I was kind of like biting my, my lip out of like uh, an anxious, like tick sort of a thing where like the tissue in my lip would swell and there would be like basically like a pocket of fluid And the only way to like remove it was to cut the tissue away and like stitch because it's, you can't like, if you drain it, it just comes back. Like you have to like remove it. This happened to me twice. The first time an oral surgeon took care of it. Fine. The second time I went to a new, I had moved to a new city at that point. So I had to start this process all over again, where I went to like a DP, explained what was happening, explained like, I know what this is, this is happening to me before. I need to see someone who can help deal with it. They sent me to an ENT, ear, nose, and throat doctor. And I just assumed that this guy was going to, like, examine me and then refer me to, like, an oral surgeon. That is not what happened. He gave me one exam. He was the weirdest doctor I have ever encountered. This was pre-pandemic. He, as soon as he came in the room, put on gloves and would not come near me. He sat very far away from me, asked me a bunch of questions, and then, like, did a very, very quick, like, look in my mouth and got as far away from me again as possible. Weird. It was so weird. And at the time, I was just kind of like, yuck, yuck, how funny. And then he scheduled me to come back and he was going to remove it. I I don't know why. I just kind of kept on moving through the system like no big deal. But he did the surgery. I, they numb you. You're awake the whole time. It's not like I was asleep. And my heart is like starting to race thinking about it. Like it was, it was such a bad experience. And then when he did the stitches, he finished the stitches and then him and the nurse that were in the room just left the room. They just walked out. And I like got up and looked at myself in the mirror and my lip was stitched so fucking tight that it would never have healed properly. It was like buckling in on itself. And I was like, Oh my God. I think this man just like, fucked up my mouth and at that point it's like over with and i'm starting to panic and i'm yeah. looking at myself in the mirror and i'm like this is wrong something is wrong and no one's in the fucking room they had left me there 
So I go out into the hall and I'm like, hey, I need help. I I need help. And there's just a nurse at a desk and she's looking at me because I look insane. She's looking at me like I'm insane. And I'm like, I need that doctor to get back in here right now. This is not okay. And he comes back and I explain, like, you need to, you need to loosen this. And he's like, it'll heal fine. And I was like, it will not. You need to fix it. I made him, like, cut the stitches out. And it was like, basically, it was just kind of left, like, there was one or two stitches and it wasn't, like, done well. And it was, God, I'm so stressed. I'm getting, like, sweaty. What Um, the fuck? (laughs) So it was the scariest. And, like, my lip did heal eventually okay, but it it's not exactly the same. Like I can tell it looks different than it did before. And I, from that, and then like this book reinforced it, like trust the feeling. If you are getting a bad feeling, don't just assume it's going to be okay. They are not there to take care of you. They are not there to take care of you. Yeah. Oh my God. So I like, that's horrifying. Yeah. That I had not like gone into that just being like, he knows what he's doing. Like after I had the most fucking bizarro examination with him and he acted like I couldn't be touched. And then like, I think I'm going to let this man cut something out of my face. What was (laughs) I thinking? (laughs) Oh my gosh. I mean, yes. I, I also feel like though it, it's, Almost, unfortunately, in America, like an adult rite of passage to have your first bad medical experience on your own where you didn't necessarily bring a built-in advocate as a parent or guardian or family member with you. And what I will say is somebody who's been in the hospital many times for my own stuff and with other family members and my husband that you always need an advocate with you. And that is true no matter how small the procedure you're having done is like that is true because yeah exactly when it starts to happen you feel kind of helpless like your mind is not processing things very well yeah and you're going through the procedure right like you you have something happening to you at that moment that is obviously preoccupying you yeah and a lot of times you know they you have taken medication, which maybe like has changed your judgment or your ability to advocate for yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's really important that you have an advocate with you. And I wish that I didn't have to say that, but again, yeah, but it is like, it is the system. Yeah. I really would have done better if I'd had someone there with me to just be like, help the panic stop. (sighs) Yeah. That was, that was that. (laughs) Um, Okay. So do you want to rate this book? yeah um so i in the end of the book she has a chapter called 38 or 38 instances of joy 38 experiences of joy and most of them are they're all from other people that she solicited who have chronic illness to say things that bring them joy throughout their days and it it reminded me kind of of the stuff we talked about with Brene brown of just like sink into the small moments of happiness that you Mm -hmm. find and it's really coming up as a theme in this podcast that like that is truly the way you can have a fulfilling Mm -hmm. life is if you let yourself enjoy the small moments and know that the small things are the Mm -hmm. big things uh, just call me a self-help wall art, Jesus Christ. I think you, <laughs> yeah, Max, I say, I think you can buy that at home. Goods. It's on a pillow. I'm so <laughs> embarrassing. Um, so I'm going to rate this book 10 of 10 rainbow sprinkles because <laughs> love a rainbow sprinkle. You do. And you do love that rainbow sprinkles. Just really is a small thing in my life that brings me joy and is like a harmless sort of happiness that I yeah. I find a lot of joy in. So 10 of 10, I, the book was well-written, well-researched, uh, well-organized and the right balance of heartfelt and authentic and vulnerable with like humor and information that balanced mm-hmm. that. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would like to rate it 10 out of 10 mirrors, which is because this is the first time that I've seen myself reflected in a piece of art. And that's uh, very important. Representation matters in a lot of different ways. And there are very few avenues where you can see anyone with a chronic illness or anyone with a disability represented in media. So I appreciated it for that, as well as all of her very insightful uh, lessons and tips and tricks to navigating a life with chronic illness. And 
I am just filled with gratitude that she wrote this book because I'm sure parts of it were not easy to write, but she did it masterfully and I really appreciate it. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Do you have a pop culture pairing? I do. My pop culture pairing is a movie called The Sound of Metal. It is a movie that came out in 2019 where a metal uh, band drummer loses his hearing. And it's a fictional tale, but uh, it is one of the pieces of art that I felt like represented the grief process of uh, obtaining a disability or chronic illness. And I thought that it did it really, really well and both honestly and really beautifully. Like at the end, uh, the end of the movie is just a really poignant, beautiful moment. So I would recommend that. I bet it will make me cry. Uh, it probably will. <laughs> not not a high bar, obviously. <laughs> I mean, it almost made me cry, so I have to you assume you'll cry oh, several yeah. times. <laughs> yeah, it's not like I have to, like, hurl myself over it. It's more like a step. Cool. Uh, I just had, like, some misty eyes, and I was like, oh. <laughs> Molly would be, like, racked with sobs then. Cool. That's our scale. Got it. Um, I have two. The first is called SpooniHacker.com. It's Spoonie, S-P-O-O-N-I-E, Hacker.com. And uh, in the book, Tessa Miller talks about something called the Spoon Theory, which she didn't develop. I don't recall the woman who did, but it's this idea that people without chronic illness have an infinite number of spoons in their daily life, and people with chronic illness have a finite so everything that they do takes one of their spoons away. And then at that, at a certain point in their day, they don't have any more spoons. And I don't know why the analogy uses spoons, but I think it was because a woman who developed it was in a diner at the time. And she was like trying to explain with the props that she had. So anyway, it, this is called SpooniHacker.com. And it's a, it's not a blog, but it's like a website that has articles and self-help stuff and community um, for a wide variety of chronic illness. And I think it, I perused it a little bit. I don't have a chronic illness in the way that Kate does that would be helpful for something like this. Um, So I don't know that I'm the best judge, but I thought it looked well done. And some of the topics were really, I'm not remembering them now, but the first three articles I saw, I was like, oh, that sounds good. Oh, that sounds good. Oh, you know, it was like, this actually seems (laughs) like not, I don't know, empty. It seemed really cool and then the other one that i just found out about recently i haven't watched it so i don't know that it's a good recommendation but i think it sounds really interesting it's the selma blair documentary called introducing selma blair she was recently well recently in the last like five years i think diagnosed with ms Mm -hmm. and this documentary is about that diagnosis and the the preparations she made to die and live so that uh i think would be really cool coming from a celebrity someone who's like expected to be young and beautiful forever and it's like actually (laughs) (laughs) just kidding yeah yeah so i i'm excited about that yeah i also heard about that and wanted to watch it i of course now have to throw in a second recommendation as you twist my arm uh (laughs) it is crip camp which is on netflix it is a phenomenal documentary about a group of disabled kids who uh found community in a summer camp Mm. but it's also largely about how many of them became disability advocates and how Mm. the American Disability Act came to be. And uh, I am firmly of the belief that we're all only temporarily abled. And so even if you are not a disabled person or don't have a chronic illness, it's still vitally important that you watch that and know the history and know how much you owe to people like that Mm -hmm. uh, because the work that they did is phenomenal and we all owe them a lot yeah yeah Ooh, i love it yay lots Um, of good stuff to check out yes and um unpack you know 
Oh, something <laughs> back. Uh, on that note, we want to remind you again to follow us on Facebook. Just kidding. We don't have a Facebook. <laughs> Fuck Facebook. God forbid. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at yeah. RDRS Digress. And, and soon also... on OnlyFans. <laughs> and soon on OnlyFans. Ooh, yeah, I like <laughs> we it. We undress books. Ooh. <laughs> I'm taking just, like, the cover taking, off. <laughs> taking the slip cover Dust off. Dust jacket. Ooh. <laughs> okay, stop. <laughs> <laughs> you could do that forever. And I would be like, yes, into it. Keep it coming. Uh, so on that note. <laughs> yeah. Join us next time for more of our <laughs> bullshit. <laughs>